Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 11th, 2015. It is a Wednesday. That's hump day for those of you that uh, know that one. Uh, especially Mike, 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 Mike. That commercial's getting old, isn't it? I don't mean the original one. I mean the the knockoff commercial of it. Here, Camel, that's what you do. Ugh. I don't watch that much TV, guys. I, I like to watch things like Tiny House Nation and stuff like that. Uh, on on uh, the Discovery and Learning Channel and HGTV and all. It's a cool show if you haven't seen it yet, Tiny House Nation. But... Man, watching that show, they play that freaking stupid camel commercial. And when I have it on DVR, it's no big deal. But when we, you know, we know one's on live and we don't have anything on the DVR and we're watching it. God, are commercials getting more mind-numbingly stupid? Here's an experiment. For those of you that watch very little TV, always use the DVR and Netflix, watch a few commercials. Um, I, I know it seems like a, a, a pointless thing to do, but TV commercials are actually a direct reflection of the bottom level of consumer behavior. Uh, about five years ago, Madison Avenue kind of snapped to, hey, if it doesn't appeal to the third grade level of intelligence, we're going too far, and with very few exceptions. There's some plucky, intelligent, cool commercials out there, but this is just getting dumber and dumber. And what's interesting is when you don't observe these commercials, you take a break, you come back and look at them, you realize how dumbed down our society is today. Today's show is about not being dumbed down. I have one of my favorite people in the world on today, especially when you get into the world of political activism, because you know me, I'm much more about active activism than political activism. But if we're going to do it, well, at least maybe we should follow the Constitution, including every part of the Constitution, including the amendments, including the Tenth Amendment. And uh, Michael Bolden is the founder and executive director of the Tenth Amendment Center. He will be with us in just a minute to talk about many current Tenth Amendment initiatives and how you can support them if you wish to. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's for you here Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. I say it all the time, but it's because it's the truth. Triangle of Gun Operator Efficiency. You, the operator, the weapon, and the ammo. The final moving part, the real variable, is you. You can go buy a gun, and you know the quality of the weapon. You can go buy ammo, and you know the quality of the, of the ammo. In every situation, it is the operator that is the largest variable. The only way to account for that variable is with professional training, the kind of training you'll get with Frank Sharp Jr. at Fortress Defense Consultants with his cadre of extremely professional instructors. Instead of investing in another gun this year, how about investing in yourself? Invest in that training. Get training with Fortress Defense. You can learn more at FortressDefense.com. Next up today, ready-made resources, the company that is what it is, does what it says, and says what it does right in the name. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready-to-go, ready-made-resources.com is the website for you. From the practical to the tactical, guns to gardens, and everything in between. And right now, they do have a special promotion. This is not for MSB. This is for all customers. Uh, they, If you want two free cases of Mountain House food, here's how you get it. Well, when you purchase their most popular Mountain House food system, the Entree Package, you'll receive two free cases. 
First free case is uh, rice chicken. Second free case, spaghetti and meat sauce. That's a $294 value. Uh, I will have a link for you added to the show notes in addition to their normal uh, link just to the main website today where you can learn more about that special ready-made resources the company that does what it says and says what it does. Next up, let's look a little bit at history. The year is 1517 because the episode's 1517. Uh, Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com has done a bang-up job for us as always. We have two today. Both of them are great. Out of the Love for the Truth, the 95 Thesis and how the Ottoman Turks came to control the Levant. I'm going to read the Ottoman Turks one because I have an interesting take, and it is really applicable to the present day. Selim the Grim is the current sultan of the Ottoman Turks. He follows Sunni Islam, which means he follows the Sunnah, or traditional practices, of the Prophet Muhammad. For those keeping score, this means that Selim the Grim is definitely not a Twelver. Selim has accused the Sultan of Egypt, who is also a Sunni, of harboring a Twelver. Twelvers believe that the Twelfth Imam, with Jesus helping out, will bring about the redemption of Islam and the resurrection of the dead. When the smoke clears, the Ottomans are in possession of the Levant, a region that includes present-day Cyprus, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, Syria, and sometimes Iraq, Egypt, and Turkey. The Ottomans will remain in control of that area until the early 20th century. My take by Alex Shrugged. I'm not sure I want to have an opinion on this, but here we go. And Alex is Jewish, so that's why he maybe is saying that. My best personal experiences with Muslims have been with Sunni Muslims. However, about a half mile from my home is a Shia mosque. My kids used to play soccer with some of their kids, and my wife and I have one couple to our, have had one couple to our home. No one got massacred. Nevertheless, in 1517, the Jews of Hebron were murdered by Sunni Muslims, probably during the looting. Many Jews escaped to Beirut, and the Shia Muslims ran for the hills. I'm not asking for an apology. It's difficult enough for people to get along without asking them to apologize for the actions of their great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers. Might even need a few more greats in there to go back to 1517. Accounting for the actions of present day is a big enough job. Yeah, I agree. There's a bunch of stuff here that I have kind of to bring up. Number one, I don't want to hear Jack Diddley shit about anything uh, from my prior generations and what they did to your prior generations, unless both of us at least knew them. So for me, that's my grandparents. So unless my grandparents did something to your grandparents, tough shit about the past, let's move on with the future. I am so ever-loving sick of people asking for apologies for this and reparations for that. And And right now we have freaking, at least this is modern day. Right, The Greeks want the Germans to pay them war reparations from World War II. And at least that's within the last hundred years, for God's sakes. Not even close to hundred years, really. But, I mean, you get what I'm saying. It's the current you know, century of time, not century of existence, right? This, this crap with people making excuses about the past for their current day attitudes is bullshit. I don't care if it's a long race, religion. I don't care what it is. The other thing that I see here... So you have a Jewish man, who's an Orthodox Jew, by the way, who's had uh, Shia Muslims to his home, and their kids play soccer together. The problem's not faith. The problem's not religion. The problem is the twisting of religion. And those of you that get upset when our current president, who I call the ass clown in chief, so I have no love for the man, says things like there are atrocities committed by other faiths, including Christians in the past, I'm sorry, it's true. Here's the real message. Any religion can be twisted. 
any religion can be used to control people. And many religious people don't like to accept that reality. I'm sorry, it's true. If it were not, there would not have been an Inquisition. If it were not, popes wouldn't have had people murdered. Okay? It, it, it's been done with almost every faith. Even faiths we think of as being very peaceful. And not just in current day, but being very peaceful at all times. All faiths, at one time or another, have been used by those in power to enact violence. Why? Because states enact violence. And when states collaborate with faiths, you have a problem. Because no matter the intention of the faith, the action of the state will lead to violence. Always. Always. And that's why our founding fathers, and this is where we bring it back to the Constitution for our guests today, were wise enough to know that those two should not intertwine. And when you hear pastors saying things like, this is a Christian nation, I know if you're a Christian, that sounds like a wonderful thing. But that's what's known, friends, as a theocracy. We are to be a republic which elects our officials through a democratic process according to our Constitution. This is not a Christian nation. This is not a Jewish nation. This is not a Muslim nation. This is not a pagan nation. This is a nation that, yes, has a majority of the population who profess Judeo-Christian beliefs. And many of our founders also professed those beliefs. And those founders were wise enough to inscribe into our founding legal document that that was all nice and well, but your religion goes here, and your politics go here. My Take by Jack Spirico. And with that, I'd like to introduce our special guest, Michael Bolden, uh, the executive director and founder of the Tenth Amendment Center. And uh, we have a lot of current Tenth Amendment issues to talk about, initiatives that are going on right now. I want to let you know, Michael's going to say, hey, this is the kind of stuff we need to do. I completely agree, if you agree. Remember me with political activism. Pick and choose your battles. Fight your battles according to what makes sense for you and your belief systems. And if you don't agree with something and somebody says, we should do this, well, you're not part of we. And I think that's a very important thing for us to all be able to understand and further our critical thinking, that just because we disagree on a thing doesn't mean we disagree on the grander principles of things. That is part of the foundation of a republic, after all. And with that, this is, uh, with that I want to say, hey, Michael, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Jack, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on again. Well, I appreciate having you on. You're, you're my kind of political activist. You do things that actually matter. Um, on that note, though, how did you become this guy that's the executive director of something like the Tenth Amendment Center? Did you, when you were like eight years old and in school, uh, dreaming about what you wanted to grow up to be, did you want to be a, a constitutional political activist, or <laughs> was there some kind of wonky path that led you here? It was really wonky because I definitely wasn't struck off a horse or anything like that. In fact, I, you know, as I grew up, I went through the the government school system, so I was raised a good, you know, government lackey, a, a socialist in many ways. I, I often referred to myself in in likey communist ideology, 
And I think just over time, I started recognizing this is a very slow process and more and more people that I talk to, it takes a long time to get out of this, this government school indoctrination that we all get or most of us get. Uh, and, and I think I was just lucky enough to be exposed to the writings of people like Harry Brown. And I started thinking, well, that guy's kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, but over time, he, you know, he made sense. And for anybody who doesn't, isn't aware of Harry, he was a, a Libertarian Party uh, candidate some years ago. He's passed away, but he was a, an author, a Libertarian uh, economic and uh, philosophical author for many years. And I somehow, you know, came across to him and, you know, things started to make sense. You know, when government does stuff. Uh, they're either lying to you about what they're doing, what it's going to cost, or they never get it done the way they say they're going to do. And I just started seeing this happen over and over and over. You know, I have a, 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 a statement that I made today on uh, social media that I think is interesting, and I'd like your take on it based on what you just said now. What I said is it is much easier to get somebody to believe something than to get them to stop believing something oh man yeah i mean that that's probably a propagandist's wet dream you know, because, <laughs> you know i mean that's really how it works you know especially when you're talking about the education system uh, all the way back to us as a child and even in those schools that seem to be more independent they certainly have to go through some type of government approval and i went to a Catholic school as I grew up, and of course I learned that Catholicism was good. And when I transferred to a government school eventually, of course I learned that government was good. The solution to most every problem always seems to be government coming in. And those of us who believe in, in liberty recognizing recognize that it's totally the opposite. The problem is when government comes in, and uh, that's why I work at the Tenth Amendment Center. I founded the organization just over eight years ago. Well, I guess we're getting my math is pretty bad. I went to a government school, so I founded <laughs> the organization back in mid mid two thousand six uh, with the idea of trying to just educate a few people. I thought I would write some blogs about how everything the Bush administration was doing really wasn't constitutional, but yet all these so-called conservatives and constitutionalists were making excuses. And I was just hoping to reach maybe a handful of people. And it turns out over the years, it has really caught on. And I think well, we have a long way to go. Obviously, if we're talking about pushing back against a hundred plus years of slow, incessant growth of government power into every aspect of our lives, we've got a pretty big task at hand. And I believe that either, uh, you know, we're going to get it done now, which I think is very unlikely, or we need to set the stage for future generations. Because if we don't do it, I don't think anyone will. I, I completely agree. And now I'm also understanding why you and I get along so well. <laughs> First time we ever met by phone, because I also spent part of my childhood in Catholic school indoctrination. <laughs> I managed to get myself thrown out in seventh grade, though, and it was, uh, I remember my dad actually, the whole family was mortified, and my dad said he was proud, but he was a little disappointed that he was able to get himself thrown out of Catholic school by fourth grade, and it took me three more years. I didn't, you know, I didn't think, I mean, I think they wanted to throw me out, but they kept finding reasons to keep me there. Hopefully, you know, I would, well... Either way, I think the whole education system, I think, is a real problem. And uh, obviously, when you have top-down pro, you know, and this is something that we can even talk about a little bit on this show is, you know, Common Core. They talk about being a state-level program, but this is really a national 
uh, a program that's being funded by grants. And it's essential to to work to try to push back against that because the closer to the individual, uh, the better chance we'll have of liberty. And the idea that there's a one-size-fits-all solution on education is probably just the antithesis of humanity. I have a whole group, and that's one of them that I want to go over with you. But for let, let's start out so that people understand. We talk about Tenth Amendment nullification, mm-hmm. but the Tenth Amendment actually says it doesn't say everybody that's in the South is a racist, and then <laughs> like it seems to have been twisted by some people to say. And, and what is nullification, and how does it work? Okay, I guess that the, you know, first of all, we can, we can set the stage with, with understanding what the Tenth Amendment is. And that's the short version is the federal government is authorized to do a certain set limited number of things. And everything else is left for each individual state, for the people in each state to determine how it's going to be done. Uh, the idea is that, you know, we've got this huge landmass with a few hundred million people. It can't be one size fits all. I live in California. There's some things I love about it, some things I hate about it, but I couldn't ever imagine having the the mentality, the lifestyle, the ideology of California forced on people in Montana or South Carolina or vice versa. We've got this huge country with people with various political, economic, religious viewpoints, and the only way for us to live in peace is to allow people in their own area to make their own decisions on the vast, and I mean vast majority of important decisions, whether they're social, economic, or other. And that's the system that the founders created. And the idea behind nullification, this is the idea that when the federal government, or I guess you can apply it really to any level of government, when government goes beyond the limits that the people allow it to have, have delegated to government, then the people in each area are supposed to take action to thwart, limit, stop, nullify, render null and void those government actions. Absolutely. And can you explain how that's done? So is it just the states that screw off, we're not doing it? Well, that's a, that's really a great way to put it. I mean, if we're going to, that should be a meme, really. Screw off, we're not doing it. Because, you know, if we step back for a moment, think about it. In order to defeat your enemy, you have to know and understand your enemy. And as far as the federal go- government goes, we all know they pass a lot of horrible laws and regulations, but we rarely hear how they get implemented on the ground in practice, the nitty gritty garbage of what's, what, what they're doing. And understanding that, I believe, is the key to stopping them. And from my view in the work that I've done here, there are really two main ways that most national programs are put into effect. Version one, the federal government passes a new law or regulation or starts some kind of new program on their end. So we see the feds as the problem in that situation. But underneath the surface, in most situations, the states actually carry much of the load, generally through leading on enforcement actions, or the federal government uh, uh, gets resources uh, from the states that without these specific resources in various uh, types would make the federal program inoperable. And of course, the feds are always handing off cash to the states to help them out. So that's version one, the the feds start the program. Version two, the feds never start start a program. All of a sudden, you start seeing a bunch of states pop up with a very similar program on education or some kind of surveillance thing, and they're very similar. 
The feds don't pass a law. They don't have any regulations. There's no announcement. It's all just on a state level. But behind the scenes, you often find that the federal government is, is, is funding it. They're either giving equipment, money, some kind of tools to the states to do this. Then they tap into that program generally through some kind of post 9-11 information sharing, what they call memoranda of understanding. So the states are the front line operating, starting this thing. But behind the scenes, we recognize that the feds are funding and kind of tapping in and creating this this vast web of network of states. The Some examples of this. So version one, we found out recently that the EPA has only about 200 enforcement agents for the entire country. We're still learning about this, but we're finding out that a vast majority of enforcement policy and regulation enforcement actions on environmental issues are done by state environmental agencies, basically just following what the EPA wants them to do. Other things like gun control, when the federal government tries to restrict your right to keep bear arms, which they've been doing, you know, you can go back to 1934, 1968, they've been doing this in significant ways. We do not have a free, you know, we're not exercising a free right to keep and bear arms in many situations around the country because of government limitations. But when the feds go and you could look at at their press releases on this, when the ATF does a raid, for example, or tries to shut down a so-called illegal firearm manufacturer or owner, for example, uh, most of the time it's one or two ATF agents on the scene and maybe 10 or 15 local law enforcement. So the brunt of the work, they're using them as pawns, are the state and local law enforcement handling the frontline enforcement. Other examples would be NSA spying. So all the surveillance that they're doing, they need electricity and water. And in Utah, for example, they have this huge data center that's collecting information on everyone on Earth, what they're talking about, their texts, their phone calls. Well, that thing can only operate if Utah continues to provide them like a million gallons of water a day to keep the servers cool. So in other words, the feds have these programs, the states either enforce it or they give them tools to help them carry it out. Version two, a couple of examples are things like we just learned in the last couple of weeks, uh, it just became public that the, the, the federal government through the DEA has been tracking the location of millions of drivers around the country uh, through what are known as automated license plate readers. These are ALPR. So just for the crime of getting in a car. I, I, I and- need to stop you just, just right there. I need to stop you because you've just validated something that I said okay. years ago that I was told couldn't be done. This mileage tax crap. I said they don't mm. put a damn thing on your car that that technology right there was capable of initiating a, a tax and you'd have to put up basically a method of payment to get your tax. You know, please I, that- continue. But I just, when you said that, I'm like, there you go. You know, when I used to hear things like this, they're going to track your location. And I was like, okay, that sounds kind of futuristic. I'm sure some people want to do this. But I really wasn't, I wasn't motivated by it. And I had a number of people who've been telling me over the last couple of years, like, Michael, you guys really need to get on this ALPR thing, these license plate reader thing that the states are operating because it's a real problem. Well, you know, it just came out through Freedom of Information Act requests that the federal government for about eight years has been tracking millions of drivers through pictures of their license plate. Think of this. So 
the DEA likes working with the ATF to find so-called illegal guns. So they can be taking pictures of people, uh, their license plate, going to a gun show and then keeping a record of all these people who go to a gun show. So even if you don't have to register a firearm, they're figuring out who's the gun rights activist by knowing where they are at all times. There are serious implications for our liberty with this kind of stuff. So the way this works is the federal government runs very few of these ALPRs around the country, very few. Almost all of them are operated by state and local law enforcement. It's the local police. They have it on a car or those cameras up at intersections. They're taking pictures of your license plate. They go into a state database. The database through 9-11 terrorist uh, uh, information sharing gets uploaded to the federal government. And now the feds have a nationwide tracking database of where people are going. Uh, we even found out in a second set of Freedom of Information Act requests that even gets crazier. They're also taking pictures of the driver and passenger as the FBI is building a facial recognition system. I don't want to get too off, like make people think this is too off the deep end, but it's crazy that this, I, it blew my mind because I was like, I, you know, I like watching kind of like future dystopian films, maybe because in her, inside I feel like this stuff is happening. And then to learn it really is happening is very scary. But what's more important, though, is to recognize that these horrible things that the feds are doing, whether it's gun control uh, or uh, mass surveillance, without the states helping them out, carrying the bulk of the load, the federal government can't really do much. So we believe that this is the number one most effective way to stop federal programs. Like you said, get the hell out, you know, simply withdraw participation in them. And that will make it almost impossible for the feds to do all the stuff they've been doing. And if you want to talk about it a little bit, this is exactly what the guy known as the father of the Constitution advised to stop fed, the federal government and federal acts, whether, you know, in almost any situation, he said, a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union, quote, a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union is an effective way to stop the feds. Hmm. Yeah, because they don't have unlimited resources. They'd like you to believe that they do, mm -hmm. but they really don't. When it comes to enforcing law in Corpus Christi, Texas, from D.C., it's not quite as easy as, oh, we'll just do it on our own. They always need that local support, and there's a lot of things I've seen, and we can get into some individual things, but I've seen like even Congress basically telling the DEA, yeah, you know your budget for marijuana? Yeah, we... we We don't really think you need that money anymore. Like that's like that's at a federal level even, but that is I, I would imagine kind of a direct response to some of the decriminalization efforts in the states and like is this really where we need to spend our time and money? And of course the F the the the, the, the FDA or I'm sorry, the ATF is is I think who they they're cutting the budget from. Um, you know, they are expected to make a return on the money that's that's put into their budget by seizing and stealing things. Right, right. right? So um, in, in that instance, that's I, I think that's kind of like the federal government, so, at least in some way, sort of responding to states saying, yeah, we're not going to have this anymore. 
Exactly. And some people would like to believe that, you know, we just have this dope head in Washington, D.C., and he loves pot, and that's why the feds are backing off. But this is absurd. First of all, first of all, I wish he'd smoke some dope. Maybe he'd chill the hell out. Yeah, well, that would probably help. And then maybe he wouldn't want to start waging war on the entire world, just like his predecessor. But that's probably a different discussion. So what's actually happening on the pot thing? And I think this is a very good blueprint. We see it also playing out on other issues in smaller ways at earlier steps is that first the states tell the feds we're not going to start going we're not going to continue going along this is goes all the way back to 1996 here in california where the where california in in you know the face of arguments about the supremacy clause said they were going to you know legalize weed for for medical purposes the feds said you can't do this they raid they try to shut them down then more states do it the feds raid they try to shut them down more states do it eventually it turns out that the entire yearly budget for the DEA could only shut down the city of Denver at this point. In other words, they just don't have the resources or the manpower to get the job done, just like you said, Jack. And this is also being parlayed into other issues. For example, the the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, they have these crazy uh, restrictions on bringing new medications to market. Some people say it's protecting everybody. Well, there's many situations, and it can be documented, that people People are on their deathbed. They're virtually ready to die. And the FDA prevents them from trying out some experimental treatment like, hey, you know, this hasn't been approved by the 10, 20 year FDA uh, program, but I want to give it a shot because I'm going to die anyways. And maybe it'll save my life. Well, the FDA has been blocking people from getting these type of uh, medications. And so far, just last year, already five states have said, they passed laws saying that even if the FDA doesn't approve it in certain narrow situations for terminally ill patients, we're going to allow people in our state access to uh, experimental drugs. And about 20 or maybe 22 states in, uh, in 2015 are also looking at the legislation like this. And just in response to five states passing these laws and 22 considering and likely many of them to pass, the FDA just this month made an announcement that they're going to start looking at their their approach and, and want to change how they deal with this this uh, access to medication or experimental treatments for terminal ill patients. They didn't just do this on they their own. They didn't just do this. You know this no. think of? Are you familiar with the movie Office Space? Yes. Well, there's right. a guy with a very close name to mine in there. So right. Yeah. right. So now the part where like Peter takes his 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 cubicle apart and just completely ignores Lumberg and he's hit it off with the bobs and all and you know Lumberg comes over and tells him basically to clean everything up and he goes I can't do that right now I got to meet with the bobs and he walks away and he's like you know what Peter don't worry we'll get somebody to take care of this for you like like it's his idea and that's what libertarians always do when they run up against something they can't compete with or can't overcome they pretend it was their idea to change that's what the government does, and that's what they've been doing on on the marijuana issue. That's what they're starting to do on FDA, and I guarantee if with enough people have enough backbone, that's what they'll do on guns, on health care, on education, and everything else. I think it's it, – you know, it's not just a simple process. We're not going to snap our fingers. It's not a magic bullet. It takes a serious amount of work and effort. 
But a lot of people are already doing a lot of things in politics. They're spending billions of dollars on federal political campaigns, hoping one side or the other is going to somehow ride in on a white horse and save the Constitution and our liberty. And that never happens. If people learn that this is a failed method, a hundred years of running a business, if you're always uh, got people that, that don't follow the rules, you're, you probably wouldn't be in business anymore. But, you know, we've got a hundred plus years of, of federal government here that never seems to follow the rules and makes up rules for themselves as they go, expands their own power, judges the extent of their own power. And people still keep thinking we can play little games with them, go to courts, have debates with them, you know, pressure their politicians. I think that's verging, you know, getting close to insanity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So can we talk more about some of the individual issues and what's going on there? You've mentioned a bunch of them. Uh, I think most people have kind of decided, like, the way to get rid of Obamacare is to put enough Republicans in the Senate and in the House, and then if we can just give them complete control in 2016, even though the Speaker of the House says Obamacare is here to stay and he's a Republican, they'll get rid of it. I, I just don't see that happening. I think we've been sold out on that. I think it's an interesting issue for them to talk about. Sure, the House will vote to repeal it over and over and over again as long as it doesn't mean anything. But it, it, most people feel like that's the way to go forward. And they don't really think, like, okay, the, the states did sue over this. They lost their suit because they went to the federal government's own court to try to get, you know, satisfaction. And so nothing's being done. Is that the case, or still are states fighting back on this? There are a small handful of states that are still fighting back on this. For example, Texas has a bill, Senate Joint Resolution 16, which would create a constitutional amendment in the state of Texas, going, you know, avoiding the governor's desk, going right to a vote of the people if it passes, that would ensure that the state cannot participate in any way in the effectuation of of a mandate. So that means there, you know, and I know that these things are not there, for example. There is no uh, Texas run healthcare exchange. There is no Texas Medicaid expansion, from my understanding. But think about at some point, if people start refusing uh, to uh, pay these insurance mandates, they just say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do what James Madison said, and I'm going to personally uh, refuse to comply with officers of the union. So far, the IRS has said that they can't use liens to collect that. So they don't really have a method of collecting it. But I'm pretty confident if about 10 million people start refusing to do this, eventually Congress is going to give them approval to start using liens to, uh, to collect mm -hmm. these back taxes. Well, if, if SJR 16 passes in Texas, you know, the, the county register or whoever records the liens won't even be able to help the IRS in that. There will be no public <laughs> lien recorded locally. So this is a very important thing. It can really, it's not necessarily. Well, you're hitting something there too, because if there's a state to do that, it's Texas, because they're the only state that controls all their own land trustees. There's no federal filing of, of, of land for the state of Texas. It's completely, that was part of the whole agreement to bring Texas into the union. Well, that makes it even bigger. I mean, the, the concept is really, I mean, it's yeah. really, it's a, it's a layer of protection that right now the IRS is kind of 
trying to figure out how we're going to do this beyond just scaring people into you have to pay. But they don't really have a collection method. They can't use a lien right now, but they're certainly going to tabulate how much people owe over time. And you'll get penalties if you refuse to pay. But if over time, eventually they start using liens and your state won't record them or your county won't record them. Well, that's going to make it real difficult for them. That's why these type of things on a state level are very important. In Missouri, there's two bills that would uh, basically strip the licenses of insurance insurance providers to operate in the state if they collect what they call illegal IRS subsidies. So there's another lawsuit, which I don't really have any faith in, that says that the IRS is not authorized to uh, provide subsidies uh, in states where the federal government is operating these exchanges. Well, if the state you know, rips out the license of these people, well, then it's going to be hard to, to operate the, the mandate in the first place. So there are some creative ways that people can push back on Obamacare. And on some of these other things that I mentioned, like this license plate tracking issue, well, the number one way, if we recognize that the feds are basically getting most of the data from state and local operated license plate readers, well, you know how you stop it? You restrict or ban the state from running these things or from handing them off without a warrant based on probable cause. And that's exactly what the Virginia Senate did in a 38 to 0 vote uh, this month already. Uh, they're the first state to take some moves against this saying, hey, you know what, We're, we, we aren't going to hold this stuff indefinitely because most states that have been doing this have no time limitation. If they're taking a picture... I mean, it could be there 20 years. So the, the state, they just passed a, in the Senate, they passed a law that, well, it's not law yet, but it's moving through the process saying that, hey, we're not going to retain this. And if it's not being used in a criminal investigation warrant based on probable cause, no one else can access it. We're not going to be handing it off to outside agencies in, in the federal government or even other local law enforcement agencies in other states. And that's a very strong first step to stop that license plate tracking, too. I mean, you could you could push for a state constitutional amendment to simply make the tracking and recording of of, of license plates through uh, technology illegal. Yes, and that's basically a, a bill in Florida, the Florida Privacy Protection Can't do it for you guys. We're not allowed to do it here. We can't do yep. it at all. And we can't but, let you do it either. So Well, that's, that's even more interesting because in Florida and in Missouri, the legislation in both of those states specifically prohibits a federal operation of these license plate readers. And as things stand right now, and of course the feds always want to trade, change things to their advantage – Currently, the feds don't install these things until they get permission from the states. We know they tried to do it in Utah to track location of everybody through, a. I, can't, I think, maybe Highway 15 all across southern Utah a couple of years ago. And when the state legislature eventually said no, the DEA withdrew their request and they didn't install them and instead relied on the state to operate them. So the idea that, hey, the states just have to start saying no, and even if I think the general response is, well, the feds are going to try to find a way to do it anyways. Well, we know they're always going to try to find a way to do it anyways. But if we can create these barriers and keep pushing them back and back and back, we're basically looking to get a foothold, a crack in the door for liberty. Because when people learn that the world doesn't come crashing down and we don't have terrorists blowing up nukes because everyone isn't having their their car tracked, uh, this can educate a lot of people on the advantages of being free. 
Yeah, I, it, it amazes me a lot of times when they, they, in any law, a law gets passed to require something be done, and we went 50, 100, 200 years of the nation's history without doing it. And then the, the decry is if we, if we take this law away, it will be anarchy. The whole world will fall apart, et cetera. I mean, some of these things that, that, you know, we've had passed in the past five or six years, they act as though now society could not function without them in place. And, and my response is, how do we make it through the entire century of the 1900s without this then? Right? How do we possibly survive as a society without these restrictions upon us? And, and do we really think that we, that we have devolved as a species into such madness between 1999 and 2015? Yeah, and, and that's probably the argument that they're using on Obamacare. Now it's here to stay. Let's yeah. just, tr we'll come up with a replay, a different federally run health care program. And that's what they do on everything. And this is the type of scare taxes. I mean, something as simple as hemp farming. Something that, you know, I go to, I go to a Whole Foods, for example, and I buy hemp granola or hemp protein powder or you can buy clothes please, made please out of hemp. Please explain what the difference between hemp and marijuana is because there's probably 10% of the audience that don't know. Well, they both come from the cannabis plant and marijuana is the one that has THC that uh, reportedly Thomas Jefferson used to smoke from time to time to, to set his mind at ease uh, and that's the one that gets you buzzed. The hemp has very low or no THC. In other words, you'd have to smoke a field of it to get a buzz. This is the stuff that's used for food, for clothing, for paper, for oil. There are a lot of giant industries, cotton, lumber, etc., oil, that don't want to see this plant, you know, grown all over the country. And think about that. You know, this is a time of economic difficulty. And what does the federal government do? It blocks farmers from growing one of the easiest to grow crops in the country. Mm. And instead, the United States is the number one importer of raw industrial hemp in the world, the number one and two exporters are China and Canada. So we're importing all this well, stuff and we can grow it here. I was going to say that because there's like farmers in North Dakota that, that have their farms right up to the Canadian border that literally look across the border to Canadian farmers growing hemp seed and somehow Canada's not an anarchy. But we're the freest nation in the world, right, Michael? Not Canada. Those guys are socialists. Right, right. Well, you know what's interesting on hemp? There are five states that have already, in defiance of so-called federal prohibitions, are have legalized the growth, production, and commerce of industrial hemp. They're already growing it in uh, in Colorado. They started growing it in Vermont. And the first report last year about growing it in Vermont was really interesting. It was some local paper about how the farmers acknowledged that they even obtained the seeds in illegal international commerce because they wanted to start growing it. This is in the paper locally that they got the seeds from overseas even though it's illegal. So this is what people are doing. They're basically saying, hey, we want to live more free. We recognize this is positive for our economy, maybe positive for our diet if we really want to get into it. And the federal government is blocking us from doing it, but we're going to do it anyways. And that's the attitude that I think more, I know the founders had that attitude yeah. when, you know, they had the stamp, uh, the stamp act, the founders didn't say, well, let's sue let's them. Let's make it better. <laughs> yeah. Let's, you know, let's repeal and replace the stamp act. That's yeah. going to be a meme. I guarantee you no founder ever said, let's repeal and replace. Oh, it's going to be a meme. 
because I'll have it out by tomorrow morning. All right, you're going to beat me to it, I'm sure. And if you're going to do it, I won't do it. But no, no, you do it, and I'll share yours. Yeah, that's that's a good one. You know what's infuriating to me? They have this, you know, the Super Bowl commercials come out, and they have this new one for H&R Block or E-Taxes or something like that, and it's the Boston Tea Party, and the the colonists are just going ape shit and throwing all the stuff off the boat, and the British military standing there in the little, you know, boarding crafts, And the guy's got a really nice, jolly English accent. And he says, we know you're upset with the taxes, but what if you could file them for free? Oh my and then the colonists are like, you mean free? Absolutely nothing. Oh, and then everybody gets along, right? So I was like, can you more corrupt the historical significance of something like the Boston Tea Party than that? The, co the colonists were not upset that there was a fee to pay the taxes. The colonists were upset that the taxes existed, period. I actually think when they say the whole taxation without representation thing, that's all a misdirected pile of crap, too. They did not want to pay the taxes at all, and they certainly didn't want to be told, you must buy these. That was the other thing. Like People don't know this. It wasn't just that there was a tax on tea. You were required to buy the tea. Like, you couldn't find an alternate source. It was forced into the local economies. And they were extremely aggressive about how they do this. It wasn't just about dumping tea. They, they targeted businesses. They boycotted. They were serious. They ostracized, and not just that, but the Townsend Acts and the Stamp Act. People can look these things up. These were hated things done by the central government, very similar to what we have today. They didn't play nice with these people. They hung them in effigy. They went to their homes. I don't think a lot of people have the courage to go to their, uh, to uh, Barbara boxer's house and you know hang her in effigy the secret service would probably be on them and yeah. you know in all honesty but this is the type of why do we why do we serve these people at our restaurants why do we why don't we laugh at them as we see them in a park they should be treated and with just total disdain at every turn and i'm not talking about just making some snarky comments on social media i mean in real life like why are business owners letting politicians come in they shouldn't Just block them. You know, this makes me think of something totally off topic, but yet sort of on topic. I was watching one of like the History Channel or Learning Channel, like one of the shows on guns, and they were showing all this stuff from guns from the 1800s. And of all places, Italy had a, 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 a kind of a tradition of they had these these wooden targets that the gentlemen would shoot at with pistols, and they were hand painted, but like you know, artists that could just whip it out of effigies of of Italian government leaders. Oh, wow. And the whole thing wasn't like burning an effigy. It was more like, this is just to remind them. Yeah. Well, we'd all go to jail if yeah, we did that these days. They just happened to be on the target wow. in order to remind them that the people have the power. Well, Italy. I Yeah, and that's a place that couldn't be more socialist these days, more just kind of under the thumb of, you know, everyone's exactly the same and government's in charge of everything. But that's, there's not, I mean, the United States of America is pretty damn close to that type of mentality today. As you were saying, Jack, you know, if a program goes away, the world's going to end. What if Social Security doesn't, doesn't exist? I mean, that's a sacred cow. There aren't any Republicans or Democrats that are talking about getting rid of Social Security, and we would look at that as an unconstitutional expansion of federal power. Mm -hmm. and, but, you know, these are things that need to be addressed. And, of course, the 800-pound gorilla is the IRS. At some point, 
the IRS will have to be dealt with. I don't think the people are ready to do what needs to be done with the IRS no. at this point in time. But that's why it's so important to deal with some of these other issues step by step, whether it's if it's working with states to block uh, or prohibit like Mississippi, the Mississippi House just passed a bill and it's likely to pass the Senate of uh, uh, prohibiting the implementation or participation in Agenda 21, for example. That's not necessarily a federal program, but it certainly gets federal dollars to help it go through. Sure. Or Virginia is moving on a bill to ban Common Core implementation. That would be extremely important to help return education where it belongs. Let's talk about Common Core for a minute because I have a bigger issue with the states when it comes to Common Core than I do with the federal government. Yes, the federal government's responsible, but I feel that the states, instead of having to, to, to do something with the Tenth Amendment, just could have never done it in the first place. Like, exactly. that was one that they didn't really make the states do. They kind of sold them on it because Texas basically said from the very beginning with Common Core, that's nice, not here. Right. And that's when I was talking about those two ways that these kind of national programs, and that's why I specifically refer to them as national, come into effect. Sometimes the feds pass a law and then they look for help to get it implemented. And then other times states just do it. And then all of a sudden you see the feds kind of getting their hands in there and trying to control it and funding it to make sure it happens. Because even though it was probably just a political climate where the feds probably couldn't have passed something to totally take over education. So they helped facilitate this state level program. It was certainly the states that started it. And yes, the states should certainly have said no, like Texas did. And I think there's actually a bill. Was that an executive decision? Was that Rick Perry who's Said that Rick first Perry time. initially just said, yeah, we're not doing that. And that that went all the way back to there were a lot of ways that that was snaked in. Part of it was it was tied to some of the funds from the stimulus. Mm-hmm. So when Texas just basically said, take your stimulus funds and stick them in your ass, because right. we're not going to be saddled with all this expense for unemployment after your money runs out and we're required to keep doing it, a lot of that other stuff that was tied to it, like Common Core, just didn't happen. And and to me, that's where the federal government shows its true colors. It's like a mafia drug dealer, right? Yeah, hey, exactly. Man, the first couple hits of heroin, dude, they're free. Yeah. Right? So you're hooked on it. And then they don't have to actually use direct force. They can use indirect force. So they start giving you a bunch of highway funds, and they say, now, we want you to set your speed limit here, or we want you to do this law or that law. And you go, we don't have to. And they go, you don't have to, but we don't have to give you the highway funds that we've first extorted from your state in the first place. But don't worry about that. And now you're living off that stipend, so to speak, right? And that's one of the most insidious ways that the federal government controls things. That's why I am over my mind concerned about this free college crap. Oh, yeah. Well, it's just another version of the whole thing because well, all of a sudden you hook people on this drug. Well, let me explain to you how I, I feel this works. Okay. It's like this. So I am the federal government, but I'm Jack. And you're the state of Tennessee. So you're Michael, state of Tennessee. And I come to you and say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to invest together in your citizenry. I'm going to put up 75% of the money, and you're going to put up 25% of the money. And you go, yeah, I don't want to do that. And I take a gun, and I put it to your head, and I go, click. Yeah, you do. And you go, whoa, 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 okay, all right. You got the gun at my head. I guess I got to do this thing. So we co-invest. I'm at 75. You're at 25. Now there's a time to make a decision. Do we increase it? Do we do this with it? Do we add this to the curriculum? Do we restrict that? 
And you go, okay, Jack, well, I'm in this too. I get a say. And I go, let's vote. I get three votes, you get one. Yeah. I get three votes, you get one. So, okay, you voted no, I voted yes, it passes, goodbye. And it's just like me coming to your house and saying, you know what, Michael, we're going to buy some land together. And you go, I don't want to buy any land together. And I put my boot to your throat, put a forty-five in your mouth and say, you want to buy this land with me, don't you? But I'm a good guy. You only have to put 25% of the money up. I'll put 75%. And then for the, and you, you make the deal because you don't want to get shot. And then for the rest of all eternity, I get complete say-so because I put more money in. Yeah, and then I think there are some situations where it's not just that the states are, are kind of like put in a situation where they don't want to get shot. I think some of the decision makers in the states are like, yeah, I actually want to be working for you at some point. Yeah. So I'm going to go along and I'm going to work my way yes. up as kind of a hitman because eventually I'm going to be working in Washington, D.C. Even the best state-level politicians that we've seen over there, and it's hard to say that because I really think politician and good are, you know, they just don't go hand in hand <laughs> in almost any situation. It's a real rarity. But even some of the ones that do the least harm over the years, you find out that like all of a sudden – you know, there was a series of five decent ones that were a part of this 10th Amendment caucus in Utah a few years ago. And then all of them ran for Congress and all of them lost because mm -hmm. they almost always end up wanting to have higher aspirations. And I think that's a, a serious part. That's why so many uh, on the state level are compliant and they participate in these things. But then again, when there's enough pressure and enough people to do like what those farmers in Vermont are doing, there's not much that government on any level can actually do to put it to an end. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, when we look at that, how how is this being applied then, let's say, to gun control? That's another hot debate. Down here, we're trying to get open carry passed. Today, the Huffington Post has out an article that I, it says, I shit you not, that open carry activism in Texas is shifting to terrorism. Wow. Well, I think gun control is terrorism, but that's yeah, probably another but how are, how can the tenth, how is the tenth amendment not like how can but how is the tenth amendment being used by states for gun there, control? There's ten states with with bills of various intensity that seek to block enforcement, mostly on a state level of federal gun control. Now, Judge Andrew Napolitano, he's the Fox uh, News senior judicial analyst or whatever legal analyst. Uh, he is. He said about a year or so ago that if states would just stop helping the federal government enforce gun control laws, it would make them, in his words, quote, nearly impossible to enforce. We agree with that. That's what James Madison said in Federalist 46 on virtually everything. If the states stop helping, the feds aren't going to be able to pull it off. So there's about 10 states right now, including Texas, House Bill 413 and House Bill 422, which would prohibit the state from participating in a whole slew of federal gun control measures. Uh, it's a very powerful first step. Uh, the Montana House uh, just uh, last week passed a bill, uh, House Bill 203, for example, that would ban the state from participating in the enforcement of any uh, federal bans on firearm or ammunition even. So if the feds try to basically cross the line even further than they have, well, they're not going to get help in Montana should this bill become law, and it's moving that direction. Uh, and these are very important things to get done. Arizona has a similar bill, uh, Senate Bill 1330, that just passed out of committee at the beginning of this week by a 4-2 to two vote, and it seems to be poised to move to the state Senate. Uh, so it's just a matter of getting involved and helping push this type of legislation forward. We actually 
and, you know, and I should have actually mentioned earlier, but we track almost all of this stuff and we provide specific step-by-step action items on how to support these bills at our action center, the, the website. Of, uh, it's okay that I mention it, Jack? Yeah. Yeah, it's tracking.10thamendmentcenter.com, and you spell 10th Amendment Center out. So tracking.10thamendmentcenter.com. If you go there, there's a series of, of our top hot topics from NSA spying, Common Core, license plate tracking, Agenda 21, federal gun control, indefinite detention, all these various things that, that we're talking about and a few others. And you just click into whatever issue is important to you. So if you want to stop federal gun control, help protect the Second Amendment, click that. And then you can tap on your state, find out what is or is not going on, and we provide you with steps that you should take to support the legislation that's been introduced, or we give you model legislation so you can call your state legislators, representative and senator, and say, hey, here's a bill that I'd like to see passed in my state. Cool, man. So let's let's move on to some of these other issues that are going on about NSA spying. I mean, that's that is one of the most insidious things that I think has happened, and I think way too many people seem to be way too comfortable with it, and right-wing radio, up until Obama took over, did a hell of a lot to sell people on being comfortable with it. Yeah, they did, and that's, you know, I think most people in the mainstream are are just generally partisan hacks. Things are bad uh, when when the other side does it, and things are good uh, when your side does it. And Harry Brown, I talked about him right at the beginning here. He used to say about Republicans, you know, they, they govern like Democrats when they're in charge and then they talk like libertarians when Democrats are in charge. And we, you know, that's kind of the things that we see happening still today. And NSA spying, the idea that your person's houses, papers and effects are no longer private, that the federal government can sweep them up. This was called a general warrant back in the time of King George. And it was one of the top reasons <laughs> that the Declaration of Independence existed and the idea that uh, we've gotten so soft that it's okay. And I know most of the people listening here are probably not okay, but a lot of the general public is totally okay with it. Well, there are some people who are trying to sue, and just yesterday a federal judge here in California said that they couldn't rule on the constitutionality of federal spying because of federal secrecy, and they couldn't even make a decision. <laughs> this is, I mean, it's almost it's it's comical how bad it is. We cannot make a ruling on the constitutionality of federal spying because we'd have to expose secrets. You can't sue us unless you can prove that they're secretly spying on you, but it's impossible to prove that because it's secret. So to trust the courts to solve this problem is a seriously bad strategy. And that's why we're supporting legislation in Utah and Arizona, Washington State, uh, in uh, Maine, Iowa, in uh, Missouri, all around the country to basically say that the state will not provide what's called, quote, material support or resources to federal warrantless surveillance program. And that's kind of a kind of a flipping of bird at Washington, D.C., because the phrase material support or resources comes right from the Patriot Act. It's this really broad based thing that says they can do anything to, to basically spy on you. So we're going to say we're not going to provide you with any help needed. And one of the number one things, like I mentioned earlier, is the fact that in order to collect all this data and store it at the Utah Data Center in Bluffdale or store even more at the San Antonio facility, the old Sony factory there, they need water in Utah and they sure as hell need the Texas independent power grid. Because back in 2006, 
the NSA maxed out the, the power capabilities of Baltimore. They ran out of power and they were freaking out. There was a news report in the Baltimore Sun how they were worried about a virtual shutdown of the agency. So what oh, that's did they do? Terrible. Yeah, well, yeah, right. Well, that the whole idea is if states would actually just say, we're not going to participate, we're not going to provide you the resources, then they can't continue to expand. They have to go back to Maryland, where it seems like the state just loves them because they all work for the NSA or the federal government, and they can spy on themselves. But if Texas would just turn off the switch, that facility isn't going to do anything. <laughs> It, it it wouldn't be that hard to do either. I mean, you. I'd love to see him do it in the first place. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And that was one of the that was one of the reasons why. And, and I'm not sure if people are aware that they they converted this 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 Sony factory into a huge kind of NSA hub. And then shortly after, part of the reason they did that is because they knew Microsoft was also building another facility, a data center right down the, the, the street. Kind of makes for a kind of an insidious relationship. We want to be in the same neighborhood. Uh, but one of the number one reasons is because cheap, independent electricity, because they've got a lot of problems with electricity operating all those supercomputers. And in Utah, they can't operate them without water to cool them. And Utah's providing them the water. I'm sure Texas is probably providing them the water, too. We just haven't found the documentation to prove it yet. So uh, Which this is, is a, a problem for me, because we are not exactly no. water rich in this state. We're not, we're not in the p position that California is in or anything, but... We have a lot of restrictions on water for use in our state due to an ongoing drought. And the last thing we need to be doing with it is cooling freaking supercomputers so that the NSA can spy on my aunt freaking Edna. Well, that's what they're saying in hearings on the, on the Fourth Amendment Protection Act in Utah, which was basically, hey, I don't want my constituents to basically pay or provide services on their back to be spied on. Uh, that It's going to have a hard time passing, but we've been working on it for a little bit over a year there in Utah. It's House Bill 150, and it certainly is garnering a lot of support in the grassroots. Uh, the sponsor, Mark Roberts, says it's it's tough, uh, but he thinks with enough pressure he'll get it to move forward. And, I mean, I think it, it would be huge. I, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with Tom Woods, the author of the book Nullification. Yes. Uh, I was talking to him you recently. Know, you know, it's funny. He's been on the air. And right, right when we started, he, I got a notice from Skype that he was – He's online. We should try to get him right now and jerk around. <laughs> <laughs> He'd kill me, yeah. but you could take response. I love Tom, and he recently told me, you know, he's been very supportive of the work that we do. He's like, you know, I like all the stuff you guys are doing on Obamacare and, and the FDA and all these things. He's like, but if you actually turn off the power and the water to a federal agency, that's historic. And I agree with him. And in fact, Nevada actually already did this. Most people don't even realize this. But the, the Department of Energy has been trying for about uh, 10, 15 years to uh, establish this nuclear waste facility at Yucca Mountain in Nevada. Well, the reason it stalled is because Nevada pulled the water permits needed to do the drilling, and they can't get the job done. So it was just noticed, noted in a national report this week that Republicans in Congress want to revive this program, but there was a little paragraph that said, well, they're still facing the problem that Nevada shows no interest in giving them the water permits. They got away with it. They did it. It works. It even went to federal court, and the federal judge says, you can't mess with water water rights in Western states. So he ruled on, you know, rarely happens, but ruled in our favor. So this can be done. It has been done. Uh, and we need to do it even more. Absolutely. So how can people 
spur this stuff on? What is the best course of action? I mean, I, I think this is one of those times where you don't call your congressman and your senator, at the federal level anyway, that they're, they're exactly the people you're trying to, to, to kind of outflank, so to speak, that this is a state-level activism. So is it just working with state legislatures? Is it, I mean, what is the most productive thing a person can do? And, and I want to be clear to the audience, I am never the guy that says, go out and support this. I want you to support the things you want, guys, but I, what I want Michael to do is tell you how to do that. Yeah, this is this is what we're talking about. If we want less buying, this is a way to get it done. And absolutely do not waste your time on anything in the 202 area code. That's Washington, <laughs> D.C. Because there, don't call, forget the number 202 exists, unless you have relatives there, but then encourage them to leave. Uh, so turn your back on Washington, D.C. They're not going to help you. You can go to tracking.10thamendmentcenter.com, and this is where you're going to find all these various issues again. The number one thing you need to be doing is building relationship, even if you hate them. Talk to these guys on a state level, your state senator, your delegate, uh, your state assembly member, your state representative, whatever they call them in various states around the country, and get them to support this legislation. This is nullification season. Most state legislative sessions, especially in Texas, are very short. Some of them are only every other year, like Texas, Montana, Nevada, and others. But they generally run from January through about April. And this is the time where you can get things done. That's why we created this tracking and action center so people know what bills have been introduced in their area and they know who to call. So if a bill is in committee and you click on a, a Second Amendment Preservation Act in Arizona, SB 1330, for example, you get on there, it's going to give you the phone numbers of all the committee members to call and tell you what to say when you call them. So this is a very powerful tool. We know that that most state legislators don't get a lot of phone calls. So as little as five or 10 are going to make them start paying attention. So get on that website, start digging around a little bit, find out what's going on in your state and start taking action because you can actually make things happen. And then you actually talked about, Jack, a couple of bigger picture things. It's not just on a state level, even though it's very important to do that right now because this is the season for it. Throughout the rest of the year, we also want to be working in our communities, educating people that this is a different path that should be taken. We want to work with our county commissioners to start helping advance freedom, not install red light cameras or license plate trackers, for example, to take various actions to expand liberty on a local level because that's where you can have the greatest effect. Yeah, I, I think there's another really important component to the, the bigger thinking, and that is that right now I think when the federal government is deciding whether or not they want to do something, and when I say they've got the federal government, I don't mean the totality, but I mean yeah. I mean the, 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 the Senate and the House and the President, and I mean the various multi-letter organizations that, that do the same thing, only faster and easier through the issuance of regulation. They don't even think, well, how's Florida going to react to this? Right. Right. They just think, you know what? We don't give a crap if they like it or not. They're damn well going to do it. They don't expect much of a fight. And I think it needs to be flipped around to where they're like, yeah, maybe this isn't worth doing because if all it's going to do is result in us having to pretend it was our, our idea to change – that weakens us because tyrants want to hold on to power. And if you start making them, you know, the, the choice being if you do this, it may further weaken you. It's a lot less tempting for them to do it. 
Yeah, that's exactly what James Madison. I mean, you're you might as well be quoting Federalist Forty Six, Jack, okay. because because he basically said if if states you know basically throw up these roadblocks and multiple states do it on fed, any federal act, it would create a situation that, as Madison said, the federal government would hardly be willing to encounter. They don't want to deal with the idea. He knew it then when he wrote the Constitution. It's no different today. And think about that. The federal government didn't do much back then, and these state-level actions were still effective. Now, today, when almost everything the federal government does relies on help from states, it's even more impactful. So you're absolutely correct. It's not something I actually talk about enough, and I probably we should that you know we just need to make them think hesitate every moment they hesitate i mean if you're in a in a gunfight not that i've been in any but I, I i hear that one hesitation can make a difference between life or death and i think hesitation can make a difference between life or death of federal programs as well i think definitely i mean if you look at it the actual window to get obamacare passed was a two-year window mm-hmm. if it didn't get done then And that's why they pulled out all stops. That's why we got an Olympia snow job. That's why the whole thing happened the way it did, because it was the opportunity to get it done. And if it didn't get done then, it, it wasn't going to be part of the Obama legacy, which you know Obama wanted it to be part of the Obama legacy. And I think there's a lot of times where things like that happen, because my, my true belief is that the American people are most easily led, not that they should be, but they are most easily led through fear and anger. Those, those are the two things that cause rational people to agree to dumb deals and make dumb, stupid decisions. We can see it right now, the fear of measles. You're about my age. You're probably not terrified that you're going to get measles or you'll die if you do. You probably remember episodes of the Brady Bunch where all the kids got measles. And the biggest freaking problem was which doctor do we use because we have a merged family now. You know, I mean... So, but, but if we can make people afraid, like if we can make you afraid of ISIS, ISIS is going to bomb your living room, right? If I can get you afraid or I can get you angry, then I can get you to do stupid things that I want you to do. And those opportunities are very narrow because the only defense that the average, and I hate to put it this way, but the average idiot has today is that their attention span to be scared or angry is relatively short. So you have to lather people up, and you have to act now. And if you can make that process take longer than the average person's ability to be afraid or scared or angry about it, then you can bypass it ever happening, if that makes sense. Do you think it's worse over time? I mean, that that, yeah. that makes a lot of <laughs> Okay, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense because what they're selling all the time is fear. They certainly are with Obamacare. If they didn't pass this, you know, there are 40 million people who are going to die in the street. Uh, you know, if they don't take, go to war in Syria and Libya, you know, they're going to bomb your living room. And I saw old propaganda films uh, from back in the, the 50s and 60s. I saw one specifically show a mushroom cloud and then point to someone's house in the suburbs say that this will happen to your home, your home right now. And that was the, uh, you know, this is the type of stuff that they've been doing for a long time. But you think you think it's worse today. Is that right? Yeah, I do. And I think but I think that it's worse because it's become more sophisticated. Mm. And I think that so recently I authored an article that got some people really pissed at me. And I think it's they don't like they don't like what it means that it's true. And they can't actually refute the claim. And the claim is basically that and you'll love this because this is right out of Tom Woods. Government can do nothing 
and pass no law without the implied threat of violence at the point of a gun. That that is the only way a law means anything, because if you won't enforce it, it's not a law. And frankly, if I don't want to obey it, I really don't give a shit. You could, you, your government could pass every law that it wanted to. It could ban my right to own a gun. It could, as long as there was no enforcement, I'd be like, well, that's nice, right? So for a law to have any meaning, it has to be something that will be enforced with violence. And people will say, well, when you get a speeding ticket, all you get is a fine. Yes, but if you don't pay it sooner or later, men with guns come and they take you away. But in, you know, a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, that threat of violence was very horrific, very abusive, and it was, the person could understand that it was horrific and abusive. Mm -hmm. Just because you put velvet over the iron glove doesn't mean it's not made out of iron anymore. And a lot of what the government does today is a lot like a mafia boss would do. So, I might not have to actually point the gun at you to use the gun to control you. So I could go in and control a whole little village, a whole little town, a whole little suburb, whatever, in the Bronx, let's say, as a mafia guy. And then if you're not playing ball, I don't actually have to shoot you. The fact that everybody knows I'll shoot anybody that pisses me off bad enough, I can just basically ostracize you. Now, now I can go and say, nobody do business with this guy. And if you do, you're going to have problems. Well, people would say, okay, well, he didn't put the gun at your head to make you comply. No, we put the gun at other people's heads. So right. you would have to comply. And I think because government has, and because the media cabal with government have become so much more sophisticated into making people comfortable with the threat of violence and to make violence not look like violence, that it is much worse today because now when I get you afraid or I get you angry, you don't see the consequence for what it is. If the consequence is tomorrow, everybody that doesn't comply is going to be drugged from their homes, strung up, well, you get the violence. But if the consequence is we're slowly going to destroy the lives of people that don't comply, whether it's through uh, seizing their assets, whether it's through putting them in prison, whether it's through destroying their careers, whether it's through destroying their business, it's still violence, and it's still the gun that enables the violence. Just because I don't come to your house with a gun put it to your head like I was saying earlier and drag you out in the streets doesn't mean it isn't my guns to give me the power to take your assets because you know what you know what Michael you transferred money between your own two bank accounts last month five times just under $10,000 now you know what right that looks like that looks like structuring I'm not going to fine you. I'm not going to, 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 to take your, to jail. I'm not going to do anything except I'm just going to seize your bank account. Now, without guns, that can't happen because whoever was responsible for it, if somebody took, you know, forty, fifty thousand $50,000 from you, I imagine if they weren't more powerful than you, you might go see them and you might be like, make with the money's back, please. Right. But right. when it's the government, well, they can just say, well, we didn't do anything violent. I'm sorry. Seizing somebody's property with no due process is as violent as it gets. We've just made it look softer. And so that's why I up or setting them on fire or whatever. We've made it. Well, look they threaten the bank. Civilized. Yeah. They threat. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, it, no, that, that's well, there you've completed the analogy, right? So instead, so like the way they get that done is they just tell, you know, Nations Bank or well, I guess they're out of business, whoever, you know, Frost Bank, whatever. Hey, it'd be a shame if we seized all your assets if you didn't let us seize Michael's assets. Right, right. And, and how more mafia can you be? 
That's exact. I think Mafia is a really good example. I talked to this. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people who actually own dispensaries in California or in Colorado over the years. And one guy told me that every time he's been raided, and it's happened a number of times, the DEA comes in. One, two DEA agents, ten local sheriff or police. They come in. Uh, they tell him to cut down his plants. Then they open up his register, take out the cash, and he's back in business the next day. So it really is very mafia on how they do it, at least in that industry. It's protection money, then. Basically, if you don't if you don't fight back when we take your shit, we'll just let you go back to business tomorrow. Now, if he said you can't have that money, then they would haul him off to prison. Absolutely, and he knows. And the violence at the point of a gun. Please to explain if it's not. Yeah, and he knows to keep some cash on hand, and that's why I often harp on the idea that. Like, look at this whole marijuana thing. It's definitely a blueprint. So even if it's not important to someone personally, learn from it. Because these people since 1996 have basically been running stores, retail stores that the federal government threatens at any moment to shut down, arrest, take all their stuff. And they do it anyways. I think there is a serious courage involved there. And I think that if we're thinking that just passing a law, whether it's even these good ones that we're talking about on a state level, just passing it isn't going to get it done. It really is going to take individual action, individual courage, and individual resistance on a large scale, saying no to these people as often as possible to really effectuate any positive change. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think the other thing it's going to take is opening people up to the fact that it's not okay for someone else's rights to be impinged upon just because you don't agree with their decision to use those rights. So there's a lot of people that when they hear about something like marijuana usage, they go, well, I don't think anybody should do that anyway. Well, let me be honest with you. I'm not going to go get you know buzzed tonight on pot. I don't necessarily think it's a great idea to be a pot smoker. I do believe there's val valid medical reasons for pot, but on just the like the recreational dope use, I'm pretty much of the opinion, not a good idea. You know what, though? I don't care if you do. Right. right. People say, well, you might like have an addict like steal my TV. Well, then I would like them, please, put in jail for stealing my TV. Right? Right. But, but smoking pot doesn't harm me, and even though I don't think you should necessarily do it, again, specifically from a recreational standpoint, doesn't mean that I think it's okay for you to have your rights stepped on. And if I want my right to self-defense, then I have to see your right, even though it's something I don't necessarily approve of, or to go into something like a moral issue. Many people have a big moral problem with gay marriage, let's say. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to offer a protection to one group of people, then equal protection under the law. Whether I like it or not doesn't matter then we have to be for everybody's right, even if we don't agree with the choice, as long as it doesn't infringe upon our rights. And the biggest way the government is able then to use the fear and anger and mafia formula is, well, you shouldn't worry about this. Why, 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 why do you care? Are you smoking dope? Right? right. If you, have, you haven't done anything wrong, you have Church nothing to group. Right, advocating for marijuana usage, but you're not advocating for marijuana usage. What you're actually advocating for is individual rights. Yeah, and I think it's really important to focus, at least for our work, we always focus, again, on the whole founder's vision that what people in one area might think is positive or acceptable, even though I would say on an individual level, I think state restrictions on liberty are bad as well. 
But yes. if we try to have a one-size-fits-all solution, you're guaranteed that everyone is going to lose. Correct. And so the, the idea is if if one state does something bad and then their five neighboring states advance liberty or one of the neighboring states, then maybe the one state who's doing bad, the people will learn from example. And I think this is, again, how we're seeing the pop thing playing out. People are learning that the world isn't coming to an end. Let's apply that same process to the right to keep an arm, bear arms. Why aren't there medical, uh, you know, medical machine gun licenses like they're, <laughs> I mean, think of someone who's ill in a wheelchair. They yeah. need to be able to defend themselves. I mean, it might be a silly idea, but in a way, this is how people have learned. They reckon, you know, the whole thing with marijuana, they were saying, hey, you know what? You know, there's some sick people who need it. And then they learn that, you know what, the world doesn't end when other people use it. The same yeah. thing could happen on something like the right to keep and bear arms or health freedom or food freedom, whatever it may be. You know, get the foot in the door, crack it open, show people that liberty is actually an advantage rather than something to be afraid of. And I think that even in the face of government power, liberty will always win. Well, here's how I feel. I actually think the smaller a government gets, and I don't mean small from a standpoint of, of money and, and the way that people want to say so well, for small government. You mean geography. I mean geography, right? Yeah. The smaller the geography, the more oppressive the government actually can become. But if I'm not forced to participate by staying there, if I have the freedom of movement that's inherent to a republic, and we're supposed to have states that also form Republican governments. And I don't mean mm -hmm. Republican Party. I know you know this, but for the audience, the Republican form of government. So the states are actually bound to, you can do whatever you want, but your, your government is supposed to be in of itself a Republican form of government. So there's a certain amount of autonomy then to counties and cities and towns. So that not only do I have freedom of movement within the states, but within my state. So if my county does some really stupid crap, I might just not live in that county anymore. And if my state does something really stupid, I might move to a different state. And it seems to me the expansion of the federal government has a goal of like amalgamation of all the states to take away that. In fact, there's been states crying to the federal government, you need to do more To, to, to prevent things like this from happening. I think it was the governor of Washington was crying to the federal government because people were leaving his state. Yeah. That's the point. That's the whole point. Like, you can let states do really stupid, really oppressive things if it's going to cost them. Because sooner or later, the most productive members say, you know, had enough in New York. You guys take too much of my money. You take too much of my talent. You take too much from me. You keep taking more. You keep restricting my life. You know, Pennsylvania is not the greatest thing in the world, but the border between Pennsylvania and New York, it ain't the Berlin Wall. Rennie U-Haul, bye-bye. And as long as that can happen, that, that was like the system the founders gave us. It wasn't perfect. And what I was saying the other day was the, the founders gave us the system of a, of a country that had all kinds of problems. They said, here's your mechanism to fix it. You sort it out. This is the best we can do for you. And, and, and it's like we've totally crapped on that idea. Instead of being responsible citizens of a republic, I mean, I, somebody said to me the other day, Michael, I think you might find this interesting. If you want to understand how dumbed down the average American is today, go read the Lincoln-Douglas debates mm -hmm. and understand the people that listened to those were farmers and hog ranchers and, and common folk of the time that were communicated to at that level, and they understood what was being said.
And today it's all dumbed down into 140 characters or less, so our thought processes aren't as deep. So the idea of what an unwarrantable measure might be is like, what does that word even mean? People yeah. can't understand that. That is unfortunate. And, of course, I think that, again, goes to, uh, you know, just the whole control over education is, is a real problem. So, again, again, Michael, as we're here at the end, you want to tell folks how they can get involved with the work you guys do, uh, the, the websites you've given out already, any other websites, any other initiatives, It's the floor is yours, hold nothing back. Just as simple as possible, I want everyone to go to tracking.10thamendmentcenter.com. You can link to all kinds of other stuff on there once you get there, but the number one thing we need to do, especially at this time of year, is to take action in our states and local communities to reject nationalized programs, federal laws, regulations that, that are beyond the scope of the Constitution. That will move things forward. We'll build on that. And when we talk about it in 2016 around next year, we won't be talking about 200 bills. We'll be talking about 300 and how many of them that we got passed. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you for being here with us today, Michael. I appreciate you for the work you do and uh, taking the initiative to start up something as awesome as the Tenth Amendment Center. And I know you're a tireless activist, uh, and I know you want liberty for people. So, so thank you very much for that. Back to you, Jack. I really appreciate it. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierka today, along with Michael Bolden, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Redemption. 